Hi there, I'm Sue Elvis from the blog Stories of an Unschooling Family. Welcome to my podcast. This is episode 188. And today I am talking with my daughter Imogen about all kinds of things. We're not exactly sure yet, but I am sure the conversation will go here, there, and everywhere as normal. Welcome to this episode, Imogen. Thank you for having me back. I suppose you need someone to help you expand our very short list of notes into an hour and a half of nonsense. Well, this is not my fault that our uh, list of things to talk about is very short today because I didn't get much of a chance to put one together. I guess I should have been thinking ahead. But yes, we have decided to do this on an impulse, haven't we? Yes, and scheduling problems. <laughs> yes, we were supposed to record this podcast on Monday. Um, was that yesterday? It was yesterday. But we knew we couldn't do that yesterday, so I didn't even bother thinking about it. And why <laughs> couldn't I? Uh, why couldn't I talk with you yesterday? Oh, because yesterday was my first shift at my new job. A new job. Tell us about it. Um. So. I bit of background here. I have a new job because my old job at my old cafe it closed down suddenly um, last Thursday. So we didn't get any notice of that until the night it shut. At which point they told us, "Hey, this we're closing down for good, and you are basically out of a job immediately." Don't turn up for your shift tomorrow morning. <laughs> I know. I had a lovely shift all day the next day, and I was like, "Oh." I guess I get a day off then. So um, over the weekend, I was very lucky. Um, my youngest sister, Gemma Rose, works at another cafe in the same town, and they're very desperately looking for staff at the moment. And I'm very desperately looking for work at the moment. So it was a match made in heaven. And so, yeah, I had my first shift yesterday, which was why we couldn't record. Yes, you're... Younger sister helped you out. Put a good word in for you, yes. hey? Say, hey, my big sister, she can make good coffee and she can <laughs> she's, do stuff. She's really sticking her neck out for me. What if I was terrible? What if I shut up like, she's not as good as you. You said she could. She was good. <laughs> that would reflect badly. Well, so what is it like working with your younger sister? But your younger sister has been there over two years now and you're the new girl. <laughs> it's been It's been really good. I was honestly more worried about what she would think about working with me because she's been working there for two years so I'm the outsider coming in um she's very good at her job she's frighteningly efficient um so she's showing me the ropes and I'm trying to pick up on everything as quickly as I possibly can so that I can actually be helpful can we talk about that a bit Jim Rose is 17 right so she started work there soon after turning 15 and the job has really encouraged her to uh, be outgoing, more outgoing, isn't it? Absolutely. Um, she's a lot more confident um, pretty much in every way. Like she interacts with people so much better, um, like with more confidence. She can talk to anybody. Um, she can deal with any with problems as they come up. She's very quick on, you know, thinks on her feet. Um, she doesn't mind taking charge and teaching people how to do things. Um, she does some of the most important jobs in the cafe. Like she's one of the mainline cooks at 17. So yeah, she's, it's taught her a lot. 
I don't think that I would have predicted quite the change in her from doing this job. I mean, she's always been outgoing at home in her when she's been comfortable, but to go out there and take up a position that's in very much in the public eye, having to talk to people all the time, it wouldn't have been a job that I would have said would have suited her. But it's been surprising, hasn't it? Yes, and I mean, she she did pick one of the hardest industries to go into because uh, hospitality is not known for be for having the best people to interact with. You would think that you know, getting a cup of coffee and a sandwich was a life or death situation. So to to sort of excel in sort of confidence and communication there is a big thing. Yes. Uh... Customers in cafes aren't necessarily nice, are they? You have to deal with a lot of criticism and people who are abrupt, people who complain all the time that you yeah and they'll blame you for things that aren't your fault like you will total up there up their meal and go why is it so expensive and it's like well all the prices are there you could have figured this out for yourself we've literally just typed it in and it's come up with an automatic price don't blame us for the price <laughs> i'm sure you don't say that <laughs> of course not it's one of the things of hospitality you can never say what you're thinking because oh boy we think a lot of things <laughs> thinking of a lot of things tell everybody about your coffee names you know how you know people by their coffee names? Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, you, know, you know people by their orders all the time. Um, I used to have a customer. We didn't know his name. We never knew his name. But we used to know him as Jumbo Cap because he always used to order what in that, in that cafe was known as the Jumbo Size Cappuccino every single day. And I don't know how he managed to drink a Jumbo Size Cappuccino every single day and not bounce off the walls with caffeine but apparently it worked <laughs> when you and Sophie were working together you used to uh, when you were wanting to talk about particular customers that sounds terrible isn't it talking about the customers but uh, you might have been saying such and such said such and such to me today and you identified the person by their coffee order yeah um it's it's a it's a big thing it's like you know she might say oh did you see sue today and be like Who's who's this soon? It's like she she orders you know a, fl- a quarter strength flat white on decaf with uh, with half an equal. I'm like I know who that is. <laughs> yeah, I know that person. Yeah, I did see her. So what's your coffee name at the moment? Oh, I'm I'm small decaf mocha. I'm uh, what am I? Medium latte, but sometimes I go medium decaf latte. <laughs> and just recently, I have been introduced to mochas, and oh, that's going to be my weakness, I think. <laughs> There is nothing better than the combination of coffee and chocolate. (laughs) True. But I think the point we're making is that, first of all, uh, casual jobs such as cafe work isn't always as easy as it looks and certain people can't do it. It takes a special kind of person to do that, doesn't it? Absolutely. Um, I've had a lot of people come through on the jobs I'm working, I've worked, particularly in my last job where a lot of the time I was responsible for helping train them and they would be young and it would be one of their first jobs. This will be their first experience. And it wasn't a hard job. Like that cafe was pretty laid back. There was always plenty of staff, not too much work to do. Um, You were always taught in stages, but some people were just not um, cut out for it because especially the social side of things, first, you've got to be able to talk to customers and then you've got to be able to interact with them in a, you know, in a transaction. And that's not always fun, uh, especially when you get someone who thinks that their coffee is too expensive, even though the price is there. Um, you know, and then you've got to be able to move quickly, like handle pressure 
because when you're in the middle of a rush, you're just going for it. Like it's, it's, it's stressful. It's, it's very stressful. There's lots of people and there's lots of people not being very nice because they don't like the fact that they've come in the middle of a rush and can't get their, their food and coffee as fast as, they, as they'd like. So you've got to be able to deal with people and you've got to be able to deal with stress um, and a lot of stress. And some people just can't take that sort of job or it's not the right time for them to do that. Some people are just too young for it and they just don't have the confidence to stick it out. But then again, some people like Gemma Rose, we might have said, well, she won't be able to do that either. So sometimes people are surprising. Absolutely. And I think a lot of it is as well how much you're willing to you know, throw yourself into the job and learn it because certainly it's not my first cho- first choice of a comfortable job. I don't particularly like interacting with that many people on a daily basis. And while I can work with the stress, stress is not a fun thing for me. <laughs> I do not very much enjoy it, but I mean, I've got over three years of experience now, so I know what I'm doing. And it's it's pretty much if you're willing to stick it out and you're willing to put the work in, you can learn it, but it just depends whether it means enough to you. And for a lot of young people, it doesn't. Like particularly, you know, teenagers, they don't need money. They don't need a job. It's like, you know, weekend. pocket money. Yeah, for, for a lot of them. I'm not saying for all of them. It certainly wasn't for Gemma Rose. But for a lot of them, it's just pocket money. So they don't take it too seriously. So if it's more difficult than they were expecting, they're not willing to put in enough work on it to you know learn the skills they need it's either I'm going to make a quick dollar now or I'm going to go and do something that gets me money without with less trouble so casual work especially in a cafe is a good experience you can learn lots of skills from doing it and I think that watching you girls that it is a, a good learning experience it's not something that you could say is beneath you sometimes you say well it's just a casual job but but it yeah Mm. and people don't value that absolutely not people do not value jobs like this um I mean I'm 26 so I'm above what people consider you know the normal age for a cafe job um and so if you're in a conversation with someone like oh so what are you doing it's like and I I have to answer well I'm a waitress you know I work at such and such a cafe I'm like oh are you doing anything else? Like, are you studying? Mm-hmm. It's like, and, and you're saying, like, is this not enough? Is it not enough to, to have a job? Like, why are you looking at my job and thinking it's, it's, you know, not as good as someone else's? If every waitress and waiter in the world thought the same about their work, you couldn't go out and have a lunch. You couldn't go out and get your coffee first thing in the morning and, you know, laze around on a Sunday morning having conversation in a warm, sunny window because there's no going to be nobody there to give you a coffee and a sandwich. Like, someone's got to do it. Just because it's not brain surgery doesn't mean it's not a worthwhile job and you're going to miss it if we're not there. I can see you feel very strongly about this image. <laughs> I may have had a few conversations about this that didn't go my way. But then again, um, that question, what else are you doing? In your case, you are doing something else. Absolutely. I am absolutely doing something else. But I don't think the fact that I'm doing something else, which is something that I like a lot better, um, is necessarily a reason, you know, 
doesn't d- doesn't negate the fact that I'm still getting judged very heavily off the job that's actually making me some money at the moment. <laughs> now, quite a long time ago, Imogen, I did a podcast oh, a few years ago about multi-potentialites. Do you know what that means? Um, I believe I remember, but I would like you to remind me. People who have more than one um, passion. So like you have your biggest passions, I suppose, are writing and music, yes. right? And, well, I've got a few as well. Very interesting people. <laughs> <laughs> but in that episode that I, I remember talking about how kids can find employment around their passions. And there was several options, which I picked up from somewhere else. I, oh, I'm just trying to... I think it was from the Putty Like website. And I'm just talking off the cuff here, Imogen, and I'm going to get lost in the middle. <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> Uh, for example, the, the, one of the options is what you're doing. You work part-time on your passion and you work part-time on a casual job or another job, which isn't your passion, so to support yourself so that your, your, your cafe job supports your time that you're taking for writing and hopefully one day your passion, your writing will take over and you won't need to do cafe work, right? Yes. Other people decide just to do their passions in their spare time and just have a full-time job doing something that they can get a job at to get money. And I can't remember what the third option was. That's, I knew I was going to get lost. <laughs> uh, but anyway, that is a way that you can pursue a passion and hopefully turn it into a career is by supporting yourself doing a, a casual job, isn't it? Yes. It's a good way. And you, you, that's working out well for you, isn't it? So far, yes. Right. And hopefully one day we'll have Imogen Elvis, uh, best-selling author. So if anybody wants to help me out with that, <laughs> so, you know, spread the word a bit, buy a couple of books, that would <laughs> well, well appreciated. That leads me on to the next topic of the very few that I've got on my list. We were talking, I don't know if it was last time, Imogen, or the time before, about how we find it hard to promote ourselves, right? Yes. And we find it difficult to go out there and say, would you please write me a review if you like my book, for example, because what if people didn't like it and what if people, well, not even that. I know that a lot of people have liked my book because they have told me, but I still don't email them back and say, hey, I'm so glad you enjoyed my book. Would you mind putting a a review on Amazon for me? I could easily do that because I know it would be a good review, but something holds me back. I don't want to push myself out there. I think if they choose to do it, thank you. But if they don't, I'm not going to push. Anyway, I've got some more thoughts about that. Now, last time we were together, in front of the mic that is, (laughs) we're together a lot, but around my mic, Um, We were talking about going to Sydney. Do you remember? Yes. And while we were in Sydney getting your MacBook fixed, we popped into a bookshop. And I wanted to come home with some books. You know when you've allocated yourself some book money and you're going to the biggest bookshop that you know of. And and you're bound and determined, I'm going to come back with something good. And I've got so much time because we had to catch a train and I've got to find something to spend my book money on before we have to be back at the station to get on that train home. I'm starting to feel the pressure already and I don't have any money or a bookshop. Well, you would think that going to a big bookshop, you'd have no trouble in the world finding a book you would want to buy, would you? And the 
the, the reality was I felt overwhelmed. I didn't know the bookshop for, I had never been there. Well, we went twice. And the first time I didn't buy anything. And the second time I still had my money and I thought I'm going to buy something. And I had a little bit more of an idea of the layout of the bookshop. But I found it so difficult to find a book I wanted. Too many choices, too many options. When I got on the train, I thought, oh, I didn't look at this section. I didn't look at that (laughs) section. And someone said to me, well, I should keep a running list of books I would like to read. And that would have solved my problem. But anyway, I did find one book that I brought home. I actually bought two books. And one of them was a Ray Bradbury book. Was it called The Illustrated Man? Yes. Wasn't the one that I wanted. I wanted the uh, the Dandelion. Oh, I can't even remember now. It's a short story and it had Dandelion in the title. But I came home with The Illustrated Man. And we got a Seth Godin book, didn't we? This is Marketing which I've got right in front of me here. And, you know, it's uh, an orange book with black and white uh, writing on it. And the colour reminds me very much of Curious Unschoolers. <laughs> but I published my book first. So he's stealing the good ideas. <laughs> We've, we, we know where he got his design from and we, we'd like some credit, thank you. <laughs> but you know where I stole my idea from? I stole <laughs> the orange from Penguin. And actually, Seth Godin's book is published by Penguin, so I suppose he has more right to it than I do. But anyway, this is marketing. And I never thought much about marketing, marketing myself, marketing our books. But the I haven't read it all, but some of the ideas I'm getting out of it is that we shouldn't be thinking about marketing ourselves with our products, with my books or the community or whatever and your books, what we should be thinking about is we have something that might help somebody else and we should tell them about it, shouldn't we? We should. It's a bit silly to have some knowledge or something that other people could benefit from and then to keep quiet about it. That if we have something that could help other people, shouldn't we tell them? What do you think about that? That's a turning that around we're not really out there to market ourselves we're out there to market um something that someone else needs sort of changing it from being like a selfish uh, me focused thing you know what am I getting out of this marketing I'm going to market myself so that I get something and turning around and, and thinking about this as I'm letting people know about something I have that they might need or they might want which is really the reason I wrote my books in the first place, because I had discovered a lot about unschooling, had been in a lot of different situations and wanted to pass on what I had discovered and was hoping, and I do hope still, that it will be helpful to other people. For example, if somebody is in, this, is in the situation that I was battling, Um, trying to battle homeschooling, trying to find the perfect method of homeschooling, getting a bit discouraged about it. Well, I've been down that pathway. So I could say, um, what could I say, Imogen? Perhaps I could help you there with with that particular uh, situation or... You think you can't, uh, some people might think they can't unschool because they have to be registered homeschoolers. Well, I've picked up a lot of um, tips for that. I could help somebody with that, couldn't I? Yes. I could help somebody who, what else? 
I'm sure I could help. A lot, lot, lot. I've got lots of. You've covered so many topics. Absolutely. <laughs> just need to make a list of them. And go. Okay. Someone needs this. I have it. So I think I need to sit down and work it that, and work out what how I'm helping other people with my books. Right. Yeah. Uh, what is so unique about my books? Why could people? Why should people read them? And I think that's what Seth Godin also says, that we have to know our audience, don't we? Yes. Who are we trying to help? We're not going to be helping everybody. And this is where last week's topic came in. Was it last week about criticism? Yes, I think we talked, I'm not sure if it was last last time or two times ago, but it was recently. Because we want to, everybody to like what we produce, don't we? That would be really nice. We don't want anybody to criticise. <laughs> but um, Seth Godin was saying that the more we niche down... Uh, for example, we don't want to appeal to everybody. We need to define our smaller audience because we can do more for that smaller group than we can if we're appealing to everybody because you water everything down to to appeal to everybody. Uh, Well, let's not say that unschooling is too good because that might offend somebody else. So you talk in a general kind of way and you don't actually, what you actually give people is watered down and it's not so helpful. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, whereas if you niche down and you you get really, and, and, and you really dig into the audience you want, you can, you can dig into exactly what they need and, you know, cover the specifics, which I think is a lot more helpful to people in general. Yeah, so you can go deeper with the people that you um, you feel that you can help the most. And so that means that there are going to people be people who don't like what you're producing, yes? Yes. Because you're not going to appeal for, to everybody. But that's okay because we've learned a line, haven't we, Imogen? How to deal with criticism. It's not for you. So if somebody comes along and says, I don't like my Curious Unschoolers book because blah, 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 I would say, well, that's okay. Obviously, my book is not for you. I didn't write it for that type of person. Obviously, you've got to uh, know the circumstances, but it was if it wasn't what they expected. Yes. As long as you believe you wrote a good book and that's not the issue. The issue is the person was looking for something completely different. It's not for them. Yeah? Yes. So, are you going to adopt that? It's not for you? I've, I think that is very useful to adopt um, when you're talking to people about your own work. And I also think it's a really useful phrase to adopt um, when you're talking about something that you didn't enjoy as well. Because, um, obviously, there are some things that are objectively um, not great. Like, there are books that are not not great, not well written, not well thought out. There, there are movies that are genuinely not good. So there's always going to be stuff that it's not good. But sometimes, um, you know, people like when they're writing a review and they'll and they'll rate it two stars because, uh, because there are parts of it that they didn't personally like that don't make it, you know, that aren't necessarily bad. They're just tropes that you don't enjoy. It's and. I don't think it's fair to rate people's work just on the fact that you didn't personally like it. And it's something that I've actually been trying to think about more anytime I do write a review or talk about something. It's like, was this objectively a bad book? Or is it just that it wasn't for me? Is it, 
you know, like it's like me taking up a, a, a paranormal romance and it, and reading it and going, well, that book, book sucked one star. <laughs> when it could be a really good paranormal romance, but I really hate reading that genre. <laughs> like it's not my genre. There's a lot of best-selling books that you know, sell by the millions, which I don't like. Um, I'm not into romance either, or the light chick, chick lit or that type of thing. Yes. But loads of people love it. And um, authors sell loads of those sorts of books. It's not for me. But they do a great job writing for those people. Yeah. And I think that's something we've always got to keep in mind when we're talking about something that we've read or something we've watched. And, and you know, judging it is, was it objectively bad or was it not for you? And I think we have to be very fair to the people who create it and go, yeah, this was, I made a mistake picking this one up. It wasn't for me. Yeah. And so, yeah, that's a good way of looking at it, isn't it? So I'm hoping to use those words more. It's, it, instead of uh, getting upset if someone's criticised what we're doing, just, you know, just say, well, I'm, I'm sorry, it wasn't for you. But I think Seth Godin actually said the words, I didn't write it for you, which... <laughs> <laughs> now, 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 calm down, Seth Godin. Let's, come to, let's not get too aggressive Oh, here. look, I'm not going to... Uh, <laughs> I'm not going to take that as a quote. I might have got that wrong. But uh, that sounds a little bit... Uh, if I someone said to me, I didn't write it for you, I might take a step backwards. And yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that gets scary. <laughs> I, f- I feel like there's a delicate balance here between, you know, acknowledging their point of view and going, okay, maybe this book wasn't for you. And then basically attacking about, well, you're obviously not my target audience then. <laughs> you can say it in a nice way, but I think it gives you strength. I didn't write it for you. You could say it in a nice way. Uh, I didn't write that book for you. Um, but it really puts the power in your hand and stops you worrying about what other people are thinking, doesn't it? I don't know. I don't know if that would work for me. I'd say that and go, oh, no. Oh, no, they're, they're going to hate me now. <laughs> they're going to go away and go, oh, that Imogen Elvis. Don't ever interact with her. She is just the worst human being. I expressed an opinion and, and, and she just attacked me for it. This is not for you. <laughs> I'm just, but do you really, I mean, does it really matter what they think of you? In the long run, probably not. The other point that I like about Seth Godin's approach to marketing was that he said we should help people without expecting anything in return. You know, a lot of people have this view, especially in blogging and podcasting and online stuff, where you'll help somebody else in the hope that they'll reciprocate somewhere along the line and get something back. So uh, I'll promote your books hoping you'll promote mine, right? Yeah which we do anyway, but we don't do it for that reason. Uh, but he says that you should help people without expecting any return. It probably will come to the fact that they will help you, but to be more pure about it. Yes? I think people can always tell as well when you've got an agenda, like when you're doing something, expecting something in, ret- in return, because it, you never come over the way you hope you will. Um, so if you're doing it, only because you really want this person to help you out in return. You're not giving your genuine opinion. You're not giving you genuine help. It's it's selfish. It's like uh, once I got, when I was on Facebook years ago, someone new into the blogging world, she sent a message to every single blog she could think of in the homeschooling genre, introducing herself and trying to make a connection. And she'll help me, I'll help her type thing. And she got a lot of followers, but 
I could tell she want, it wasn't because she wanted to help me. It was because she wanted to get started. Yeah, well, it wasn't because she wanted to help you. It's because she wanted to help herself. Exactly. And because her uh, homeschooling, I suppose, philosophy and such like was totally different to mine, I didn't see how we could help each other anyway. Yeah, it's not like you can share an audience then. She wasn't, she wasn't very discriminatory. She just hit everybody. I go out there and see how many people I can get to follow me by making this uh, connection with everybody. Yeah. And I didn't bother. (laughs) (laughs) But, yeah, I think one of the ideas is that if we – the people who will help us in our endeavor to spread our message are the people we help. If we've done a good job, then people will turn around and tell people, won't they? Yeah. I'm always telling people people about good books I've read or something that's helped me. Do you? Oh yeah, that's um something I'm especially been trying to do more recently is you know share books that I've um that I've enjoyed or help someone else out by posting as part of a cover reveal or something and just you know be more genuine about um, sharing things because especially when I enjoy something by an indie author or a smaller author, so I know my opinion can help them. I don't necessarily expect anything back from them, just that. My saying something is exactly what I'd like somebody to do for me. So my posting a review, which might take me 10 minutes to write, you know, could make a, could make a big difference for them. Yeah, so, yeah, do for other people what you would like others to do for you, but don't do it so that they do it for you. Yeah, you want to build up a reputation of being someone that people can come to if they need something, because the people that you know, have that reputation of being a genuinely nice person who you can turn to if you if you need help. They're the people that, that everyone else wants to help. I think that if we have skills, it is a pleasure to help other people by using those skills. Yes. Uh, for example, you know that when you arrived home from work this afternoon, I was on a Zoom call helping uh, a friend set up a new podcast. And we talked about that last week briefly, didn't we? We did. And... Um, We've got together a few times on Zoom so I can answer some questions and sort out some problems. And it's been a real pleasure to do that for no no return whatsoever, except friendship, you know. It's not as if I'm getting paid for it, put it that way. Yeah, Uh, I'm just doing it because I enjoy doing that. But it's so nice to have learnt skills and to pass them on to other people so they know them as well. I get rather uh, a big buzz out of that. Yeah, look, I've learnt this. Would you like to know it too? I don't know if I spoke about this last week, but um, did I speak about when my, I used to work at the university? And I worked in a laboratory, and uh, it was very hard to get anybody to teach me the skills because everybody was clinging on to their skills. They didn't want to share them with anybody because if you shared your skills with a newcomer, then they might get uh, better, they might be better at their job. <laughs> than you are you know what I mean that you you've got to keep all your skills for yourself so that um you could keep your employment there's no sense of of teamwork there no just thinking that doesn't that really doesn't work when you're in my industry (laughs) if you don't teach someone how to do things you're one man down down the whole time and everybody suffers well true but see what could happen though is if you didn't share your skills with somebody and they messed up you could all point the finger at that person and say they're the weak link (laughs) and get rid of them but one day there was this new girl arrived after I'd been there a while and nobody wanted to teach her anything. 
but I decided to teach her everything that I knew because I'd been in that situation myself. Uh, you see what I mean? It's, yeah. It's a bit of empathy there. You do what uh, to for other people, what you hope other people would do for you. Yeah, so that was Seth Godin and this is marketing and I'm still reading it and, and enjoying it. And Seth Godin doesn't need me to say anything nice about it or write a review about it because I'm insignificant <laughs> compared to Seth Godin. Everybody knows Seth Godin. And, yeah, he doesn't um, need my help, does he? No, I think he's already more than more than enough of a bestseller. But he's doing a good job there by publishing his books uh, in an attempt to spread his message and help people like me. So really what we're... T- what we're doing when we talk about Seth Godin's books is we're not helping him, we're helping other people who might need him That's and right. might need his books. We're providing a valuable service for you people. I hope you're appreciating it. <laughs> what if people say you're not? What if people say I'm going to turn off? She's full of herself there. Absolutely. <laughs> You're in a funny mood today. Must be all that work you did earlier. This is what happens when we record in the afternoon rather than the morning. This is this is post-work, Imogen. She's already worked hard today. <laughs> You're not all together. <laughs> Absolutely not. Well, this is post-Zoom call for me because I spent two hours on a Zoom call. And yes, I'm a bit tired too, but we're, we're plowing on here. Well, actually, that sounds terrible, doesn't it? That sounds like we're doing this because we have to and... You know, our big audience out there, they're just waiting for this podcast. It's they're hanging on, just, oh, when's the next one going to drop? It's, it's almost podcast day, right? <laughs> <laughs> don't, make me, don't make me laugh. I'm sitting here because I'm enjoying talking with you at the end of the day, and it's a real pleasure. It's not something that we um, feel we have to do or anything like that. Oh, no. It's um, good fun, and it's nice to imagine people out there listening in. And if they enjoy it, that's added pleasure to us, isn't it? It is. Right, so I've got this word on my list here called, it says, Sanditon. Do you know what Sanditon is? Why don't you tell us what Sanditon is? <laughs> it's an unfinished novel by Jane Austen. Now, did you know that she left an unfinished novel before I told you about it? I actually didn't. Like, I, I know about her six finished works and, I, and like, her early writing, um, but I wasn't aware that she'd had another one that she hadn't finished. So that was news to me. Well, somebody, I don't know his name, I think it's a male, he took this unfinished book and he has turned it into a mini-series. And I think there'll be multiple seasons of this mini-series. It's an unending story. He's taken the characters. And he has imagined where Jane Austen would have taken the story and he's adding in more. If they're going to have multiple seasons, he's going to have to use his imagination to get the story going. <laughs> Absolutely. There'll be a lot of imagination if he wants six seasons. <laughs> and when I saw it on the ABC the other day, because uh, I was browsing for something to watch, occasionally I go to the ABC catch-up channel to see what's available for free to watch. And I saw it there and I thought, oh, wow, more Jane Austen, because I had heard about the book before. And I thought I'll sit down and watch a couple of episodes. And that's what I did. And hmm, I don't know if I'll watch any more. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'll tell you, the costumes are gorgeous. The acting was fine. Didn't feel like a Jane Austen. Now, uh, maybe a couple of episodes ago, we were talking about how we can, well, we as well as other people, can take someone's work 
and build on it. Yes. Make it into our own. So, for example, there's lots of War of the Worlds productions, miniseries, movies, uh, musical, and they've all been based on War of the Worlds novel, the classic novel. Uh, but they're, some of them are very different. Yes. And how we said, it's quite all right to do this because that's creative, isn't it? If you're going to produce an exact copy, there's no creativity there. Uh, the fun comes when you add your own ideas and build on it. And we decided, for us at least, that that's quite all right. Yes. So I guess this is what whoever it is that is doing this Sanditon series has done. He's taken Jane Austen's characters and the period, the costumes, and the situation that she opens with in her book. I think all that at the beginning of the book goes into one episode and there's lots of episodes after. So there's a lot of imagination in this. He's, he's taken this wildly in his own direction. And what he hasn't done is said, well, if Jane Austen was doing this, what would she do? He said, what would I like to do with it? Where would I like this to go? And it's not just a storyline. It is the whole feeling of the thing. Uh, yes, there was a very sensual, you know, a few bare bodies and some crude references, which are... Uh, in modern language, doesn't seem appropriate to the Jane Austen setting. Yes, I mean, Jane Austen fans are people who get excited over very small things, you know, a wet shirt, a touch of the hand. They're very... They're, they're Subtle. Like, they like to hone in on very small things. Like, even, even when Jane Austen gets as close to um, openly stating something as, you know, as she ever does, like, if you think in Pride and Prejudice... Um, when um, Lydia Bennett uh, runs off with Mr. Wickham and, you know, that's as close as she ever comes to just out and out saying something. And even then it's, it's so much subtext and you've got to infer what they're talking about from themselves. And if you're talking about, you know, if, if, you, if, you, if, if you're trying to keep something in the same vein as Jane Austen, you have to be an awful lot more subtle about it. Yes, there's no doubt these things happened in Jane Austen's times, but if you're staying true to the period and if you're staying true to Jane Austen, you would convey these uh, situations in the way she would have done. Yeah, and I think I haven't seen this Sanditon for myself. I only know what I've been told, so my opinion may mean nothing, but... Um, I, th I would be very interested to know how this is being marketed. Like, is this marketed as based on Jane Austen's or, you know, is it being marketed as Jane Austen Sanditon? You know, where, where are they put, like, where are they positioning this? Is it being positioned as this is more Jane Austen or this is based on Jane Austen, you know, a story based on her unfinished novel? Because that's... um. You know, it's two very different things. If you're saying this is Jane Austen, then you basically have a responsibility at that point to try and stay true to what she would have done and to take it in a direction and a tone that she would have kept. Whereas if, whereas if you're marketing this as based on Jane Austen, you've got so many more, you can take so many more liberties and you can catch the audience that likes period dramas, but not necessarily those who get really hooked into, you know, pure Jane Austen because that's a, I think that's a very different um, crowd sometimes. Not that there's not um, crossover, but 
Jane Austen fans get a lot of um, get a lot of thrills out of very small things, and they pick up on on the nuances and and. Maybe they don't. Maybe they don't always want things to be shown on the screen because Jane Austen is Jane Austen. Her works are sort of known for being witty and sort of beautiful and refined in a lot of ways. And like, in uh, some ways, it's clev- more clever to do it in a subtle way than in a blatant way. Yes, I mean, she was all she. Everything she wrote was just so clever. It says here, I'm just doing some Googling while you were talking, so I was listening at the same time. <laughs> Sanderton is a British historical drama television series adapted by Andrew Davies from an unfinished manuscript by Jane Austen. So adapted. I'm surprised that it's Andrew Davies because I'm pretty sure, and this is just going by my, by my, my very faulty memory, but I'm fairly certain Andrew Davies was involved with the making of the BBC miniseries of Pride and Prejudice. Oh, that's interesting. Um, like, I would have to look that one up to be sure, but the name is very familiar to me as, um, as you know, from the period drama sphere. So I would be very interested to know. Perhaps he was responsible for the wet t-shirt, wet shirt. <laughs> I mean, it was, I mean, that one I did hear was supposed to be a bare chest, but Colin Firth said no. Yes, he was I think not interested. It's more Googling, and I think you're right. Uh, Pride and Prejudice is a six-episode 1995 British television drama adapted by Andrew Davies from Jane Austen's 1813 novel of the same name. Yes, yeah, so, so I did it, remember it. It was his work. But this one is certainly more sensual, more uh, obviously, um, you know, more obvious, put it that way. <laughs> I say what it more obviously is because then I'm being subtle, you know. I don't want to be blatant about the whole thing. <laughs> but everyone can imagine. But I think that uh, pure Jane Austen fans like us probably wouldn't like it as much. But I think he's got a whole new audience out there. Uh, introduced Jane Austen. Well, it's not really Jane Austen, is it? But that sort of... Uh, that's that sort of period drama to other people. Like a new sort of audience. Yeah. But will they be disappointed when they go and read the books? <laughs> I mean, who knows? <laughs> Which is one other thing that I've been thinking about. Because another series very much like that is, is it Bridgerton? Yes. And I got through about 20 minutes of that without think, before thinking, this is not really for me. But I'm wondering if the books that it's based on are written in the same style as the miniseries. I have not read any any of the books. I've only seen them. So I'm going very, you know, based off what I have seen. And the books I have seen, they look very much in the style of, um, you know, like a Mills and Boone type romance. So you think that people watching the miniseries then think, oh, look, I'll go and read the books. They won't be disappointed. But people I, that are re- watching Sanderton might then go and get one of Jane Austen's books and say, oh. Oh, this is very different. Yes. This is not very exciting. And I mean, again, with, with Bridgerton, I have not read the books. I've only seen them on the shelves. And But the way they are presented is very much in that commercial um romantic fiction type way like um you 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 can usually look at them and go and and tell what sort of a book you're 
getting into by the the way that the cover is even sometimes like the size of the book because like commercial fiction like that sort of pulp fiction type thing tend to be much smaller books because they've just been churned out really fast and like it's supposed to be a quick light read and that's what it looks like it looks like that sort of book on the shelf I think that was somebody Quinn Julia Quinn maybe was she the author of Bridgerton? I saw them in the bookshop in Sydney the other day, but I wasn't really tempted to pick one up because I'd already had a quick glance at, at the miniseries on Netflix and decided that, no, it wasn't, yeah, Julia Quinn. Uh, historical romance novels, novels, it said. So I think I'm playing into the right ballpark here. Absolutely no disrespect meant to the books or anything. This is just... It's not for you. <laughs> it's definitely not for me. I'm just, I'm just trying to draw some inferences from what I've seen. We're so. not, we're not going to criticize. Absolutely we, not, because people love it. Absolutely, there is a reason why these things sell so many copies. So if you're into Bridgerton, go for it. Just I understand it too. You might like that as well, but exactly. it, it wasn't for us. Yeah. Yes. Because we were expecting. Well, we would have liked something different, I think. I think I, I would have liked something more along the, along the lines of Pride and Prejudice. I think you were. I think you went in expecting something different as well. And what you got was not what you expected based off um, your experience with Jane Austen adaptations. So I think in a way that's, a, that's another, um, an, another place where you've got to think about the needs you're filling in your marketing drawing it back to like what we we're talking about before because if you're marketing this as a Jane Austen adaptation you are catering to that Jane Austen crowd I'm not saying that there aren't Jane Austen fans who would definitely enjoy that sort of thing there's probably lots of crossover between Jane Austen and you know say Bridgerton but you're marketing it as a Jane Austen adaptation which comes with its own set of expectations and maybe they're trying to latch into an audience there that um that perhaps they're not actually feeling a need for and maybe they'll be better um, targeting it at a different audience. Obviously I don't, I haven't seen any of their, you know, metrics or anything. So I'd maybe they're just wildly popular in general, but from the outside, that's certainly what it looks like. Or maybe there's a lot of um, Jane Austen fans who like the progression. Absolutely. Could be, could be that we're just the stick in the muds who like the, who like the originals and nothing else will do. (laughs) Because when we're talking about other, um, adaptations of things we do like to see different things but just not in this case yes I think there's um I think there's a difference between you know bringing it to life in different ways and changing the like the tone and like the values of it completely and I and I, and I think that's sort of the difference between say the BBC miniseries of Pride and Prejudice which in my very biased opinion, is the best. <laughs> I, know, I know there's a lot of 2004 fans out there with Kira Knightley, but you're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> we like the original. But yeah, there's a very, there's a very great difference between that and what and what you're telling me Sanditon's like. Well, it's there um, on the BBC all episodes if anyone's in Australia and would like to have a look at it. And I got to episode two. One good thing about it, which I did like, which was for me, was the photography, the um, videography. It's a beautifully filmed series. The costumes are gorgeous. It's such a pleasure to watch something that's filmed really well. Yeah. I think that's something... Even even some blockbuster movies don't actually do that very well. Like they don't film it very well. They don't design the sound very well. So even though it's probably a great movie, it's not a pleasure to to watch. And it's just I've been don't like it. I've been uh, more 
uh, tuned in to different videography styles and editing. Since I've done a lot of photography, I can see different moods, what they're trying to project by the, the way they've edited it or got done the scenes. Yes. And yeah, this was beautiful. So that's Sanderton. But and I had another thought there, Imogen. Perhaps I'm just getting too old, you know? <laughs> Perhaps Sanderton's too old. Um, I'm too old for Sanderton. Maybe all the younger generation of Jane Austen people would love it. And I've just aged out. I don't know. I don't think that that sort of romance type thing has an age limit. I think that certainly if you're talking about like commercial romance, that doesn't have an age limit. That just gets read for um, forever. And I think... Maybe maybe this is something that just fills a need for some people. Well, you would just spoil my next... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, did I? I think, I, I think I've spoiled the segue this time around. Because <laughs> I was going to say I was too old for Sanderton because I had a birthday. How dare you have a birthday? How yes. dare you be old? I'm not old. <laughs> you just said you aged out. You got too old. I got too old for that. But I'm not too old for a lot of things. Yes, I had a birthday and I turned 60. And I'm going to say that. You know, for years and years, sort of worried about getting older. And what if people find out that I'm so old? And they'll think, hey, I can't relate to her anymore. She's too old. <laughs> if you, you haven't got old enough to get to that stage yet. But when I was your age, I remember, or a bit older... I remember looking at people who were, say, 10, 20 years older than I was and thinking, they're old. And I think, why should it be any different when people look at me? And I was thinking, I can relate to people my age. But and it happens in books, too. Have you ever read a book and you imagine the characters the same age as you? And then somewhere along the line, it's revealed that the character is 20 years older than you. And you suddenly think, oh, I can't relate to that anymore. <laughs> I, you get a different view of the character from that moment onwards and you stop connecting with them. Do you, have you ever felt like that? I, yes, in some cases. And this is what I was worried about. The people will stop connecting with me. They'll think, she's ancient, too old. We need to connect with younger people. She's past it. I'm past my use-by date. <laughs> I think that the whole age gap becomes less of an issue the older you get, though. Um, because... When you're a teenager, certainly, I think people get very hung up on having a friend group that's the exact same age as them. Maybe it's the school mentality, you know, you're friends with the people inside your class and you can't be friends with the, with the people in the year behind you because, oh, they're just babies. Can't be friends with them. So maybe, and maybe that's where the idea of, you know, there being an age group and such, um, you know, the big age gap makes a difference. But as you get older and you've got a little bit more life experience and maybe you've matured a little bit more, that that matters less. But I think also, if you don't forget, I went through the school system where we were, we were age segregated, where you are an unschooler and you are used to socialising with all age groups and you've got friends of all ages. And Absolutely. so you're a totally different situation to the one I was brought up in. So I'm hanging on to all those old, outdated ideas. But the problem <laughs> is a lot of people do have those ideas. Yes, it's unfortunate. I think I definitely think that um, having having mixed with, with more age groups from a younger age being part of groups where I have friends of all ages. Because I've got, I, like, part of my writing group, we've got people there literally of all ages from, like, 13 to oh, probably 50s and 60s 
all in the same group, all talking about the same things, and it doesn't and it doesn't matter then. I think I think especially because you're not seeing them in person, like you're not judging them just off looking at them. So when you do meet, you're like, oh, you are older than you you are a lot older than I thought, but actually you're still a really nice person. And I think the other thing is that. Um, you know, working in cafes, I spend a lot more time with older people, so I'm very used to it. The thing is that because I do most of my work online, I could make out that I was a bit younger than I am, <laughs> except for the fact you girls are getting older. I mean, it's really hard to say, look, I'm 34 when you're 26. I mean, <laughs> oh, we're ruining the charade now. <laughs> That's right. You just post nice photos and maybe do a bit of editing on them, make yourself look a bit younger. <laughs> I'll remove some wrinkles off, off my face. No, not you, me. But then I thought to myself, look, this has gone on long enough, trying to be a... Uh, hesitant to say how old I am and being a little bit sometimes ashamed of being older you know I'm old and I think no it's time to get it uh, to grips with this I don't mind being who I am I like being who I am what does it matter if I've got a few wrinkles and all that what does it matter what other people think if people don't like me I'm not for them well, Am I? <laughs> absolutely not. I did not make myself for them. <laughs> but if it's if it's any if it's any help, some of some of my favourite older people are the ones who are unapologetically their age. Just be like, I'm eighty five. I don't have to do that if I don't want to. <laughs> or I'm eighty five. I can do this. I I can do that despite being this old. You know, they're just they're happy to they're happy to um to name their age and just go with it. And like they don't care. Also, it's judging other people, isn't it? Because if I say other people won't want anything to do with me because I'm so old, then I'm assuming something about someone. Yes. And the other thing is that you're assuming something about people of a similar or older age to yourself as well. Like, um, if people are going to judge you of being 60, well, are you thinking that people are judging everybody off being 60? Is it, do we all lose value when we, when we hit 60 and above? I think that as a whole, we do have trouble aging and, and adjusting to being older. And probably I'm not the only person who worries about these sort of things. I don't think that I'm alone. Yeah. But I think it's time to stop and stand up for the people who are my age. Let's get together. Let's say, hey, we're valuable people still. What does it matter whether we're 60? We've still got great ideas. We're still uh, worth listening to. We still have value. And to actually, if I don't do that, well, I'm, what I'm saying is uh, I'm not helping anybody that's my age. We need to, need to do that for each other. Yeah, because after all, what's the difference between being 59 and being 60? Like, Oh, I didn't tell anyone I was 59. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, fair enough. But like, it's, it's arbitrary, you know, saying people are past it by the, because they've hit a certain age. You don't age out of being a good person or a creative person or a person of value. That, that sort of um, transcends however old you are on a calendar. It does, but as a whole, society does not value older people. Well, society is wrong. And also, people are worried about things like appearance and looking older because otherwise we wouldn't have such a big health uh, and beauty industry. We have that problem because we have a health and beauty industry. But it's <laughs> feeding somebody. It is. It's, it's... 
So it's time to stop and say, hey, look, let's be proud of who we are right now because I'm very proud to be 60. I'm really blessed that I've reached this age and I like being who I am right now and I don't really want to be anyone else or be any younger. But I was thinking, I've had this feeling, Imogen, ever since I got to 60, that I'm on the brink of new adventures. Yeah, that feeling that I'm ready to dive off into something else. It's more ahead that life gets better and better. And when you're in the thick of something good like romance or first babies or anything, you can't imagine anything better. And you imagine getting older and your children growing up and leaving home and you think the best is over. But why should that be? It's just another transition period, honestly. It's like just because that period of your life has been so all-consuming for a while doesn't mean that that once that's over, everything's over. It just means that now you're moving on and can do something else, whatever else you like. It's great. It's exciting. It is. And I've, I've enjoyed every single stage of my life. And each stage has built on the one before, and I've enjoyed it even more than the one before. So why shouldn't that continue happening just because I passed another number? Yeah. So I'm very um, excited I think that 60 is going to be the year of possibilities. And can I tell you my maths um, association here? I think 60 is a really wonderful number (laughs) because I like numbers. But 60, I was reading in this maths book, not a maths textbook, but a maths or living book, interest book, something about the system of six and 60. You know how we have the clock and it's 60 minutes for one hour. And 60 has loads of factors. Yeah, two, three, six, ten, twenty, um, well, you know, fifteen, whatever. And you can get, uh, so you can make fractions out of sixty very, very easily. But it's not so easy to make a fraction out of a hundred. Yeah, you've got quarters and three quarters and all that. But you can't do like thirds like you could in a in, mm. in sixty. A thirty-three point three recurring is <laughs> very difficult. Exactly. So in some ways, sixty is a better. A system to a basic unit to base your um, number system on. Yes. But when I was thinking about all those factors of 60, there is so many different ways to make 60, you know, two times, three times, 10, whatever. And I sat down and started doing it all. And I thought the possibilities are huge. So there must be huge possibilities in being 60. It must be. So what do you think of that? I think that's a very encouraging thought. I do too. So I'm 60 and I'm proud of it and I'm happy of where I am. And that's what I'm going to go forward for this year. I'm not going to worry about what I look like. I do worry about what I look like and you've got to be presentable. Yes. I'm not going to become a dotty old lady who stops uh, washing her hair or anything. There's a difference between taking pride in your appearance and wanting to look like something completely different. (laughs) Yes, right. Keep rubbing the moisturizer in at night and washing my hair. But I don't (laughs) think that I'm going to go and uh, have a facelift or anything. (laughs) She's not going to be a crusty old lady, but she's not not reaching for the Botox. (laughs) Oh, but I could do also of things because people think I'm old so I'll get uh, I could be a, a dotty old lady that gets away with stuff you know you just say you don't want to talk about anything you just say oh, oh my memory's gone I can't think of that <laughs> I'm too old you know got dementia dear <laughs> <laughs> all right that was my birthday anything else we want to talk about or have we finished for this evening because it is evening by now. Look at it that. It is. It's, it's getting quite dark in here, actually. We're sort of looking at each other now by the light of a, of a computer screen. <laughs> yeah, 
know, just imagine we're sitting on either side of a table. There's a bit of light from my iPad where I've got my few notes, and to one side of me is my MacBook, and we can see the recording going on there. But all around us, it's getting dark. So... Yeah. We seem to have reached the end of our very short list of notes, and yet somehow we've managed to talk for an hour without stopping. Oh, how did that happen? <laughs> because we don't know how to stop. Isn't it just as well that we didn't make any more notes? <laughs> well, I always keep thinking there must be one more thing that we have to say, but I suppose we could thank people for listening. And um, we didn't do our ads. Go. Oh, well, we'll have to do it at the end now. No, do them now, and then <laughs> we'll see if there's anything else after that. <laughs> Well, if you'd like to find me anywhere else, I, I'm on my website, imogenelvis.com, um, and I'm on Instagram at write, rewrite, read, and most importantly, you can find me on and my books on Amazon. Um, my latest book is Frost Hands, which is a young adult sci-fi about kids with mutant powers, and I also have a fantasy duology there as well. Well, Imogen, your books are for me. You <laughs> wrote them for me, so I can say I recommend your books because they're for us. And I'm hoping that my books are for everybody out there, Curious Unschoolers and Radical Unschool Love. And they can be found on Amazon as well. Also, my blog, Stories of an Unschooling Family. I'm on, I've been on Instagram for a long time, but I've actually been posting on Instagram <laughs> at Sue. What's that lower dash thing? Lower dash? Um, underscore. Underscore. Sue underscore Elvis underscore. And also I've got videos on YouTube at Sue Elvis. And of course, the community. We haven't mentioned the community this week. <laughs> Probably people are thinking, that's probably just as well, because we hear lots about it. <laughs> well, that's because it's, it's a great place full of amazing people. And if you like connecting with other unschoolers, then that's where you should go. Okay, thank you, Imogen. We'll put all that into the show notes. And I think it's time we said goodbye and got ready for our dinner. I think so. I've, I've, we, we've got a dog standing at the door now going, I'd like my dinner, please. So <laughs> might be time to finish. But... Also, if you have read any of our any of our books, or if you've enjoyed this podcast, um, please consider leaving a review. Um, any any way you like, it all helps, um, and it might help someone else find, you know, our books or this podcast and fill a need for them. So, if you like it, recommend it. Thank you. I hope we hope it. We hope this is for people, don't we? <laughs> okay then, Imogen. Thank you so much for joining me at the end of this working day when you're tired, and hopefully we will be back together in another couple of weeks. I shall look forward to it. So that's all from us. And until next time, uh, don't forget to live a radical life of unconditional love. different doing it in the afternoon <laughs> it is but we, we got something together didn't we we did <laughs> off this much notes <laughs> oh i really enjoyed talking to you thank you so much for um making time after your work day to talk with me i really enjoyed that thank you